0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. This week we have an environmental issue. Time to coincide with the report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We appointed a guest editor, Richard Black, a former BBC environment correspondent and director of the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. With his help, we have assembled an impressive group of commentators to reflect on the threat to the planet posed by global warming. Among them are Christiana Figueres, who was the head of the UN's climate body at the time of the Paris Agreement, Emily Schuckberg, a climate scientist specialising in the Arctic, Nicholas Holtham, the CV's lead bishop on the environment, and Loretta Mingella, the first Church Estates Commissioner, Paul Hanley, and Madeline Davies spoke to Richard Black about the challenge of climate change. You can subscribe to the Church Times by visiting churchtimes.co.uk/slash-subscribe.
1: Richard, we've been hugely grateful that you've come to hold our hand through this particular issue. The Church Times has covered climate change and climate change protests for decades now, but I'm always worried that the readers will be wearied by the same sort of coverage, same sort of stories, and the fact that nothing happens. Not only wearied, but slightly depressed, therefore not encouraged to take any action. How would you answer that?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I'm very grateful for the invitation to take part. I've really enjoyed the experience. This IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is coming out in October, it takes you very, very firmly into the space of solving climate change. So for nearly 30 years now, the questions really have been, what are the impacts of climate change actually look like in the future, and how do we actually stop it in its tracks? And we have the kind of prescription before us now. It's a tough one. It is basically to sort of stop using fossil fuels, go to what's called a net zero Economy in the space of about 30 years. It's a massive challenge because we've had use of fossil fuels for kind of 300 ish years. So we're trying to turn that around in one tenth of the time. You can look at climate change pessimistically and just focus on the impacts and and so on and so forth. But I think people don't really engage with messages of doom and gloom and destruction. And they don't have to because actually we do know how to do this. Everything that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is saying needs to be done we know how to do so really it's a question of you know do you actually want to get on and, and get involved in that or, or sit on the sidelines
1: I suppose the big question is, is where does the impetus come from and in your work do you see the public which I certainly don't do you see the public pushing the politicians do you see the politicians beginning to wake up I mean apart from the obvious fact that our climate is changing, where does the energy come from?
0: I think you've got three sectors that are very very important here and they're all interrelated, there's government, business and the public and as you said the public can absolutely push politicians but sometimes politicians lead for other reasons as well. Business is interesting because business obviously, some businesses are very concerned about climate change impacts, supermarkets about their supply chains for example, so that gives them an impetus to do things differently. But also increasingly, businesses seeing opportunities in the transition to clean energy economy. I mean, one obvious example is in electricity generation, where now we get more than half of our electricity in Britain from zero carbon sources, from renewables and nuclear. I'm not sure many people would know that, but that is the reality now. And and businesses delivering this, and of course, businesses then looking at other areas, well, how do we make steel without producing carbon dioxide how do we make cement without producing carbon dioxide they need signals from government they need leadership sometimes they need financial incentives but a lot of that stuff is actually in play in different countries there is obviously a portion of the public that is very concerned about this and does pressurize their politicians and i I think right now we're in a time where that pressure is actually probably quite effective Climate change, I don't think, is ever going to be the number one issue of public concern. I think, you know, things like health and education and austerity are always going to trump it in terms of immediate priorities. But if politicians are listening to the public, then the message is absolutely clear in survey after survey after survey. You know, three quarters of the population, ballparkish, are concerned about climate change. A greater proportion, kind of 80 percent-ish, like renewable energy... They like subsidies that pay for renewable energy. They like subsidies that pay for us to stop reducing energy waste. So that is absolutely out there. And I think right now we're in a phase where politicians are listening. That hasn't always been the case. So we're in quite a good phase in that now.
2: We've just had a a big debate within the Church of England at General Synod about pulling out of fossil fuels, Mm. pulling um, our investments out. And the decision was to stay in the room and that the Church of England's commissioner's argument is very much that you exert more influence over fossil fuel companies by staying invested. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about your reflections on that decision. Is it something that convinces you?
0: It's a difficult debate this one because I think both are right answers. Pulling out can have an effect. Staying engaged can have an effect. I quite like the approach that the insurance company Aviva has taken to this, where they said a couple of years ago, right, the companies that we work with, the investments we have, we're going to engage with them. But if we don't see signs of change, then we're going to pull out. And I don't think they set a definite time frame on that, but I think it would be reasonable to put a time frame of, let's say, two or three years so I think that's useful. That also allows you to do graded things rather than just pulling out of everything. You might, for example, choose to pull out of coal, pull out of tar sands, but stay in, involved with gas for the moment. Or you might choose, you might say, well, we're going to pull out of companies A and B because they're really not interested and invest in companies C and D because they are. So it allows you to take a much more holistic approach, a much more nuanced approach. Mm-hmm. But I do think the, the end of it has got to be To the companies, you know, if if you're not changing, then you're not going to have our money.
2: And how does this relate to poverty? So sometimes the critique, which we hear back, for example, um, on fracking is if this could result in cheaper energy, that's good for many people who struggle with fuel poverty and there's also the question of the impact on employment so if we do pull out of industry what happens to the people who work in in fossil fuel companies so do you have reflections on whether it's possible to do a sort of just transition
0: history would suggest that it's tough because we haven't really done just transitions in the past if you think about the way that britain left the coal industry for example that was Mm. absolutely the opposite of a just transition I believe it can be done, it takes planning. I think we're seeing bits of it in Scotland now where there are various you know, retraining schemes for example for people who have been working in the oil and gas industry. Germany's a very interesting example because the German government knows it has to get out of coal, it's far too invested in coal and particularly lignite and they've set up this commission basically to see how you can do it, to talk to all the stakeholders. The interesting thing is, you know, from mining communities in Germany and Poland, of course, people want jobs, they want livelihoods, but they don't necessarily want their kids to be doing the same job. Mm. So there is actually an opportunity to do something really good on coal. For oil and gas, I think it's more difficult, and it's not just about jobs and so on. A lot of our pension funds and so on are invested in fossil fuel companies. They have in the past, though not so much now, returned substantial sums to the Treasury each year through tax. So. Your transition plan needs to take account of that as well. How are you going to replenish those coffers? But I think, you know, the choice is simple. You basically either do it justly in a planned way or it ends up happening anyway in a very unjust and scrappy way. So there's no reason for not getting involved in it, I think. The other things are, of course, renewable energy, per amount of energy produced, creates far more jobs than fossil fuels do. And that applies to fracking as well. The other point about it is that we don't actually know whether fracking will be economic in this country. We don't know whether the energy it produces is going to be cheaper than alternatives. We do know that Britain's gas consumption is going to keep on falling. So that's a question about the viability of fracking. We don't know really that many investors are interested in fracking. That might stop it. There's obviously not public support in many places. We know that conservative politicians, a lot of them with rural constituencies, are worried. Uh, about the unpopularity of fracking and the really good news is that if you want cheaper energy now the way to do it is by onshore wind power which is the cheapest new form of electricity generation we can we can have.
1: I'm just thinking about um, you personally in this I because Mm -hmm. you've been reporting on this for years and in advocacy for some long time as well. Describe the arc of your
0: emotions (laughs) about this. Sure so I really became interested well I was interested in the issue when I was a student but I mean didn't really take it Seriously, student life was far too much fun. So when I uh, was working at the BBC and, and sort of started producing radio programmes and presenting radio programmes and then becoming a correspondent, I was really interested in the science of it first. I have a science degree, that was always been one of my passions. Then I started covering the sort of international politics of it. And initially it was very much, you know, as a reporter. You try and be as dispassionate as you, as you can, you try and be as accurate as you can. I was working a lot of the time with BBC World Service, so obviously, you know, massive audience in Africa and and South Asia and so on, so very much seeing this as a global issue. By the time that I left the BBC in 2012, we'd been through the quite disastrous Copenhagen Climate Summit. We'd had the sort of leak of emails from the University of East Anglia, which had cast questions on the validity of, of climate science and so on. It was quite a febrile. Time. The work that I do now, we're basically advocates for evidence. That's all. The conversation we just had on shale gas is a very interesting example of that. I mean, we're not institutionally pro shale gas or anti shale gas. We're not institutionally pro nuclear or anti nuclear. But if we're going to have a debate, let's have a debate on the basis of the facts, not on the basis of rubbish. So that's where I am now. And what I find interesting is that a lot of the arguments that were current 10 years ago have changed around markedly so the argument about the costs of clean energy now solar is now the cheapest form of electricity generation in about 60 countries worldwide and that's just going to carry on increasing you look at the cost trajectories electric cars is another thing where already on a lifetime basis they're cost comparable to petrol or diesel cars and within about five years they'll probably be cost comparable on the purchase price and then the question comes why would you not do that I don't see the rationale for anyone buying a new car in 10 years' time. Why wouldn't you buy an electric car? I I just don't understand the thought process that you would need to go through in order to buy a petrol or a diesel model. And country after country, as you're adding new electricity generation capacity, is is adding renewables because it's it's cheap and it's popular and you get the stuff built really quickly. It sort of adds a little bit of democracy to what's always been a very, very centralized industry. So there are real reasons I think to be optimistic, but the pace is still not where the scientists say it needs to be. This again come out very clearly in the sort of reaction to the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change. Report where clearly, if you look at sectors like steel, aluminium, you know, and, 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 and agriculture and so on, changing all this around is difficult. It needs big decisions, needs government to get involved, business to be willing, and in some cases, it really is going to need public pressure as well.
2: From our point of view, we're obviously very aware of the extent to which faith bodies are involved in this debate, mm. and there's often an argument that people of faith bring something distinctive to it. As a journalist looking back, has that kind of cut through? Have you noticed that there's kind of momentum from faith groups or is that perhaps something that we sort of see disproportionately more of because of where we work?
0: I think at times... Faith groups have been massively influential, and in the run-up to the Paris conference, it was really interesting to see the different groups in society who were coming forward. You had doctors, you had the military, obviously scientists and so on. But the single most effective intervention in the run-up to Paris was the papal encyclical, Laudato Si'. There's no doubt in my mind. It was a massive influence. And I think that brought a whole tranche of countries into the sort of high ambition end of things that they probably wouldn't have been there before. Of course, it wasn't just Laudato Si. I mean, all kinds of faith groups were involved in this across, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, everything. It was, it was a remarkable achievement, that.
2: And just to wrap up, could you say what you hope our readers will do as a result of reading the issue?
0: Well, I think if we go back to where we came into this, talking about the sort of pessimism and the doom and gloom that can be associated with this issue, I hope readers will take away that yes, this is a serious issue, it is absolutely a globally pressing, globally relevant issue, but it is solvable. I think some of the personal reflections that are in the issue will flag up the absolutely visceral nature of climate change in parts of the world, and equally that the messages we're seeing coming through in other parts of the edition shows that actually solutions are there it absolutely isn't too late. We know how to solve this. It's just a question of getting on and doing it. And, and I guess I hope readers will be engaged with the climate change a bit more on that basis of something that actually they have traction, not only in their personal lives, but in their interactions with business, in their interactions with politics. There is power to make this huge transition that the scientists say is needed.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. (音楽)
0: Thank you.